A boy was once given the assignment to write an essay describing humankind. Here's what he wrote. Your head is kind of round and hard and your brains are in it and your hair is on it. Your face is at the front of your head where you eat. Your neck is what keeps your head on your shoulders, which are sort of shelves for your shirts. Your arms are what you have to pitch with and so you can reach for the muffins. Your fingers stick out of your hands so that you can scratch, throw a curve, and add arithmetic. Your legs is what you got to have to get to first base. Your feet are what you run on, and your toes are what get stubbed. And that's all there is of you except what is on the inside, and I ain't seen that. Well, that is part of what we're going to try to do in our winter sermon series, to look at the inner person and the inward journey. But we are also going to explore the outward expression of living faith. W.H. Auden put it well when he said, the one infallible symptom of greatness is the capacity for double focus. And oh, that we should have such greatness. And so our series theme will prompt us with double focus. Journey inward, journey outward. Spiritual formation and ethical action in the Christian life. For the coming eight weeks, we will explore four faith issues. Peace, ecology, prejudice, and justice. One Sunday, we will deal with the inner implications of an issue and the following week with its outer expression. So, for example, next week, we will be discussing inner peace. And the following Sunday, we will discuss peace at the macro level. And so the series will go alternating from the inward to the outward journey. Colin Wilson, in his book, Religion and the Rebel, has said, Religion never dawned as objective truth. It was always an internal condition in people. One can hold mathematical truths at arm's length and look at them. But religion is tangled up with what's on the inside. Who could argue with that? The religion at its core is an inner experience. <clears throat> and yet, we need to remember that our faith is incomplete if it is only an inward turning. An outward expression is required as well. <clears throat> For God in verses 6 through 8 reminds Isaiah and the people and us, is not this the fast that I choose? And here Isaiah is referring to a social process in contrast to a personal privatized sackcloth and ashes type of fast. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing spring up speedily. That should resonate in your scripture chamber with Matthew 25 when Jesus said, As you did it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Balance between the inner and outer is what brings wholeness in the life of faith. Elizabeth O'Connor, in her beautiful book, Journey Inward and Journey Outward, recognizes this insight as well as anyone when she writes, 
just as we are committed to being on an inward journey for all of time, so are we committed to being on an outward journey so that the inner and outer become related to one another and one has meaning for the other and helps to make the other possible. If this does not happen, then those who are critical of the contemplative person are rightly so. If engagement with ourselves does not push back horizons so that we see neighbors we did not see before, then we need to examine the appointments kept with self. If prayer does not drive us out into some concrete involvement at a point of the world's need, then we must question prayer. Unfortunately, throughout history, the church has erred either on one side or the other, and for the most part has erred on the inward and pietistic side. We've, we've all experienced coming to church and wanting only to be by ourselves, to slip in and slip out. But at other times, we know it's essential to be with others. Sometimes we just need to be alone, and at other times, we need to be in community. The challenge for the church today and for each of us is to maintain a balance between the inward movement of the soul's expression and the outward sharing of love through reaching out to all who are suffering and in some kind of need. And so, we will try to do just that in the next several weeks as our sermon series, Journey Inward, Journey Outward, unfolds. Today, it is appropriate that the introductory sermon carries the title, Light Living in a Dark World. For we are quickly approaching Epiphany. The word Epiphany is based on a Greek word meaning a disclosure or manifestation of light. The season of Epiphany begins after the 12 days of Christmas on January 6th and runs all the way up to the beginning of Lent. According to tradition, the Magi, whose coming we celebrate at Christmas, are really Epiphany figures, hailing from the non-Jewish eastern region of Persia. It was they who were drawn by the star to the true light of the world. And so the liturgical color of Epiphany is white, symbolizing Christ as the light of the world. Light living in a dark world. It doesn't take much to see that there is great darkness in the world around us. We live in a time when darkness seems to threaten the light at nearly every turn. We live in a world of struggle, a world of hatred, greed, violence, oppression, and war of starvation, disease, and the current pandemic. How many of us could admit deep within that there have been times in our lives, perhaps even now, when we have lost connection with the light? It is a scary feeling to be engulfed in darkness. And here I'm not just talking about outer darkness, but also the darkness within, those, those dark thoughts, feelings, and desires that looms somewhere between our subconscious and conscious minds. Psychiatrist Carl Jung understood that we all have a dark side, whether we recognize it or not, but that it is a great help if we do. The great problem with not recognizing our inner darkness is that we are likely to project it out onto others and the world. So much fear and misunderstanding in our world are due to this problem. When individuals in a community mistrust others who are different, they are often blind to their own mistrust 
as the root of the difficulty and perceive the others to be mistrusting. When people are not willing to examine and acknowledge their own racism within, they tend to see others as being unfairly racist in reverse. Jesus pointed it out this way. Examine and remove the log from your own eye before you try to remove the speck from someone else's eye. I am convinced that it is just part of human nature to avoid and deny the evil and ugly things about ourselves because it is very painful when we do. And yet, over and against all that is a striking characteristic of Christianity. For Christianity, at its best, never denies the darkness of the world, nor the darkness within each person. It recognizes it. But it never gives in to the darkness, for our faith affirms that darkness will not have the last word. And with all this talk about darkness, let's not forget it has a place in the reality of life. The newborn child whose birth we just celebrated, and and all births for that matter, are predicated on nine months in a dark womb. Seeds go into the dark earth before they germinate and eventually grow forth into the light. How does one have an epiphany unless darkness precedes it? What would light be without corresponding darkness? What would day be without night? Had I not experienced the dark night of the soul, should I have discovered the overwhelming joy that comes in the morning? We have all, um, we have things that, that cause eclipses, that, that cause an eclipse and, and it, it shuts out the light for a while. But eclipses don't last forever. And sometimes an eclipse can give us a perspective we might otherwise have never known. Our faith proclaims that, yes, there is darkness. Some of it is necessary and and some of it is evil. But darkness does not overtake the light. The Gospel writer John proclaims in the first chapter that the light continues to shine on in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So what about us? What about our response to this light that has come into the world in Jesus Christ? Jesus put it well in our text for this morning. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in the basement or under a basket, but on a table that those who enter may see the light. We need to be receptive and and open to the light so that it might fill us, and then we need to reflect the light to others. Compelling words, these words of Jesus. And implicit in them is the fact that that we are not the source of the light. We draw from a source other than our own. The source is God in Christ. I've made the case for the reality of and the necessity for some of the darkness of life. But there is more than enough darkness to go around, especially the darkness of evil. As people of faith, we affirm that the love and light of God do shine on in our world. They shine in our very lives if we will but let them. And when we recognize the light which radiates in our inner person, we are led to the outer recognition of light in our world. 
Whenever we receive new members here at the Neighborhood Church, I always share a twin truth of Jesus. First, he said, I am the light of the world. And he also said, you, you are the light of the world. We really are called to be bearers and sharers of Christ's light in the world. Light living in a dark world. Is it not Christ's light living in and through us in a dark world? I say yes. And I hope you do too. May it be so. Amen.